This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Welcome back to a way for you to catch up to the top stories of this past week because uh, you have a busy schedule. Maybe you only had a headline or two. And you can imagine 24-7 here at the Northwest News Center and our award-winning staff, we get a lot of stories. These stories perhaps you might have missed. As we look at our list for the week, starting off here, the focus starts to turn more and more to Election Day, midterms, of course. A new COVID-19 vaccine booster for kids and a new study on long COVID. Also, two crabbing seasons canceled in Alaska. This is historic, which means an impact for boats based here in western Washington. It'll happen for the week, ending October the 15th. Now, let's get you caught up. There are now two high-profile political races here in the Northwest in which a group of Republicans are endorsing the Democratic candidate. Brian Calvert had a closer look at the camps involved and found a few things voters may want to know and consider. The first race is for the 3rd Congressional District seat in Southwest Washington, where Republican candidate Joe Kent has garnered the endorsement of Donald Trump. At a town hall this week, Kent said, This is where the party's actually at. You know, it's, it's with the Trump America First agenda. When KGW-TV asked him about ties to white nationalists... It's nonsense. Still, Kent is labeled an extremist, so much so the former vice chair of Clark County Republicans is hosting a meet and greet for Kent's Democratic challenger, Marie Glusenkamp Perez. Other Clark County Republicans, including a major fundraiser, have said they're now working to elect the Democrat. Over in Idaho, where Boise attorney Tom Arkush is running as a Democrat for state attorney general, he promises fairness. My opponent, on the other hand, has convinced himself that the attorney general's office is, in fact, a political office. His opponent is Republican Raul Labrador, a former U.S. senator who still isn't certain the 2020 election was legitimate. There were problems in the election process. U.S. Senator from Idaho Patty Ann Lodge says she's voted Republican 66 years. This time it's different. This time we've got to have someone who can work with legislators, all legislators from all the different factions, and work with the agencies and the people. Her name is on a list of Republicans saying they're supporting the Democrat. But none of this is as straightforward as it seems. First, Idaho Public Radio reports Democrat Tom Arkush was registered as a Republican to vote in the May primary. Then he changed his party affiliation so he could run. Second, Senator Lodge is retiring this year. Most of the other prominent Republican names supporting the Democrat are former or outgoing office holders. In other words, not many have jobs on the line. Accountability seems to be important to consider. After all, many believe it was Jamie Herrera Butler's vote to impeach Donald Trump that caused her to lose favor among Southwest Washington Republicans. Speaking of that region, the story's the same there. It's the former vice chair of the Republican Party that's hosting the parties for Democrats. The current chair says he was blindsided by the action of his former vice chair and says the majority of ours in southwest washington will continue to vote republican brian calvert northwest news radio state representative melanie morgan engaged in abusive and bullying conduct it's according to an outside investigation the parkland democrat was accused of inappropriate behavior towards staffers late last year in january the law firm of williams kastner began an investigation now the results were released this week and they say morgan had hostile and disrespectful interactions against a staffer on the social equity and cannabis task force and even filed retaliatory complaints now morgan's lawyer has not responded to our request 
asked for comment but has filed an appeal. House Speaker Lori Jenkins tells the Associated Press that no disciplinary action will be taken against Representative Morgan until the appeals process is complete. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Less than a month away, the midterms, and just from looking at the political ads, you can see candidates focusing on abortion, inflation, and crime. But a recent Washington Post ABC News poll found climate change is important to voters as well. Maxine, how many voters will consider climate change when it comes to picking their candidate for Congress? So, what we found in this poll is that among adults, uh, about eight in 10 Democrats, or 79% of Democrats, say that climate change is, quote, very important in their vote for Congress in the midterms, and that's compared with 46% of independents and 27% of Republicans. I think the average uh, you know, political viewer could say, all right, I bet there's more support for climate change, uh, um, climate change addressing um, among Democrats than Republicans. But you write about this conservative climate caucus and how well those climate-concerned Republicans have done. Uh, explain this, this caucus to us. Yeah, so uh, my piece, uh, which was published this morning uh, in the Washington Post uh, Climate 202 newsletter, um, mentioned the Conservative Climate Caucus, which is this group of lawmakers, um, Republicans, who believe that uh, conservation is uh, conservative and support some measures to address climate change, although not some of the measures that Democrats are calling for, like um, phasing out fossil fuels, a primary driver of climate change. And these two uh, conservative climate advocacy groups, the Climate Leadership Council and Americans for Carbon Dividends, looked at how uh, House Republicans who have joined that caucus have done in the election so far. And they found that they have amassed a 62 to 5 win-loss record in their 2022 primary elections. And those who won uh, triumphed by an average margin of 59.3%. And they used that to say, well, this shows that Republicans who are uh, prioritizing climate change are not suffering politically with their base. You also raise an interesting point about the arrival of Hurricanes Ian and Fiona. When was this poll taken and how do weather disasters influence climate change beliefs? So this poll was conducted uh, September 18th through September 21st, and Hurricane Fiona actually made landfall in Puerto Rico on September 18th, the first day that the poll uh, was being conducted by The Post and by ABC News. Um, But it took place before the arrival of Hurricane Ian, which uh, hit southwest Florida on September 28th as a monster Category 4 storm. And there's research that's shown that experiencing a weather disaster, whether it's a hurricane or a wildfire or floods or drought, um, can influence a person's climate change beliefs um, and perceptions about how global warming is affecting the weather. You can read much more online at WashingtonPost.com from Maxine Joslow about how climate change is being treated among voters, both Republican, Democrat, and also independent. See some of the quotes that were pulled from people who responded to that poll online at WashingtonPost.com. Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News Radio. Voters in King County will decide if county elections should be held only in even-numbered years. Why the consideration? Here's Eric Heinz. Currently, King County holds its elections for most positions in odd-numbered years. Supporters of the idea say more people vote in even-numbered years, the same time as people vote for president, governor, and U.S. House and Senate. 
Although voting in odd-numbered years, which King County has done since the 1970s, means local races would get more attention. The Seattle Times reports over the past 20 years, county voter turnout in even years averaged 77 percent, while turnout in odd-numbered years just 47. The measure will appear on the November ballot as King County Charter Amendment 1. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Congressman Adam Smith, who chairs the House Armed Services Committee, says the military aid the United States and its allies are providing to Ukraine is making a significant difference in the war with Russia. Details now from Greg Herschel. Here's what Smith told CNN. I was just in Europe meeting with NATO countries, you know, talking about the Germans um, getting tanks into the Ukrainians. The Norwegians um, can have a long-range anti-ship missile, um, and we need to keep working on that to deliver them more capability without question. The 9th District Democrat says the U.S. should be giving Ukraine as much air defense as we can because it's working against Vladimir Putin's forces. The amount of support in the last eight or nine months uh, that the Biden administration has been able to coordinate and deliver to Ukraine is significant, extremely significant. And you see the difference on the battlefield. Um, Ukraine has began to push back and retake territory against Russia. Another thing he's pushing for is more secure communications for the Ukrainian forces. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. We'll get to those stories of the kids' COVID booster and long COVID. We've got more to a study recently brought to our attention. Stick around for our next segment. Seattle-based crypto exchange Bitrix has been slapped with a huge fine for helping foreign clients to evade U.S sanctions. The Treasury Department says Bittrex allowed customers in Cuba, Syria, Iran, Sudan, and Crimea to trade hundreds of millions of dollars worth of digital currencies between 2014 and 2017. The $24 million fine is the largest penalty ever levied against a cryptocurrency exchange by the Office of Foreign Assets Control. They cited 116,421 violations of U.S. sanctions programs over that three-year period. In a statement from the OFAC, the director wrote, when virtual currency firms fail to implement effective sanctions compliance controls, they could become a vehicle for illicit actors that threaten U.S. national security. Bitrix, which is located in downtown Seattle's Columbia Center Tower, said it was pleased to settle the charges with U.S. authorities. Carleen Johnson, Northwest News Radio. And there you go for just a fraction of the stories we have for you and a chance for you to catch up right now with Northwest News Radio. These are the stories for the week ending October 15th. We're back after this. You're listening to Northwest This Week. The COVID state of emergency in the city of Seattle will end later this month. And what does that mean? Mayor Bruce Harrell has announced the emergency declaration will lapse on October 31st, the same day the state's emergency ends. This means hazard pay for food delivery workers will expire and limits on evicting tenants will lapse six months later. Some policies, however, will continue. Certain restaurant permits for outdoor dining will expire at the end of the year as planned, and the vaccine mandate for city employees, volunteers, and contractors will continue. But the city is also looking into whether other pandemic policies might be continued indefinitely. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Children over the age of five now have a green light to get that new COVID-19 booster shot. Derek Dennis covering it for ABC and shared this with our own Bill O'Neill and listeners. Derek, these are bivalent shots, meaning they offer protection against the original coronavirus strain as well as the Omicron variants? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and this has been a push by the CDC 
and the FDA to get these shots, these booster shots, uh, combined uh, in their effectiveness, meaning that the original coronavirus strain would be protected against as well as the BA4 and the BA5 variants of COVID-19, especially important in children as they are in school now. Uh, The school year is uh, really uh, off and running. We're we're headed towards the the holiday break now, Uh, so plenty of time for kids to get exposed to COVID-19 and maybe bring that home to their parents, uh, their elderly relatives, those who may be immunocompromised. So getting them vaccinated and boosted with this new bivalent booster shot is a win. And we know now that the CDC uh, has joined the FDA in authorizing these uh, additional booster shots. And of course, the White House is urging parents to get eligible children fully vaccinated. Again, though, you know, we've seen this as a hard sell when it comes to kids, especially the younger ones. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the numbers just aren't good. I mean, we're still seeing evidence of vaccine hesitation uh, all around uh, because of the, uh, you know, just the the fear that exists among uh, the the COVID-19 vaccines that are out there. A good number of children are still not inoculated against the virus, and that's a concern for the White House. Uh, So they came out with statements today urging parents to take their kids to get the shots once they're eligible at at least two months after their uh, original vaccine doses. And of course, this development comes at a very crucial time. We've already heard concern from the Biden administration over a more than potential and expected winter surge of COVID cases. Right, and so the advice from the CDC is for parents of eligible children to get them vaccinated by Halloween, uh, which, as you know, is just in a couple of weeks. Uh, they, they believe that that time frame will have them uh, fully protected uh, by the time Thanksgiving and, and of course, the uh, Christmas uh, holiday season rolls around. They think it's especially important to get those vaccinations and those booster shots in as early as you can by Halloween to protect against uh, what they see expect to be a winter surge, and, and, and that's due to largely most people being indoors uh, during the colder winter months, able to spread the virus and, and sickness uh, by not being outside in fresh air. And so that's the concern. Get vaccinated and boosted uh, by Halloween to protect against a, a winter spread of the virus. ABC's Derek Dennis with us on the Northwest Newsline. We're nearing the three-year mark since COVID-19 emerged and still so much unknown about the virus. A recent Scottish study has shed new light on how many people are impacted by the so-called long COVID. A detailed story appearing in the Washington Post. Taylor Van Sice went after the author and had questions. Francis, how extensive was this Scottish study and what are the top line findings? Your question about how extensive it is, I think, is a very important one. This was a study that was conducted out of the University of Glasgow, along with several other uh, academic institutions, drawing on data that came from the National Health Service of Scotland. So this is population-wide data, and it's one of the the things we learned during the pandemic, that Dr. Fauci would be on the phone to British colleagues because he needed access to this kind of population-wide data. It's very hard to get here where the health systems are so very fragmented. And in this long COVID study, the researchers were able to get results from everybody who had a confirming PCR test positive for COVID and then follow up with, up with them and send them a text message and saying, do you want to participate in a study? So this was 100,000 people, 33,000 of whom tested positive for COVID, 60,000 of whom provided a con- control group. And they came up with some interesting findings. One in 20 people had not recovered between six and 18 months after infection. reported only partial recovery. So we're seeing a pattern of long COVID 
that is definitely lasting many, many months after initial acute infection and probably will be an enormous public health burden going ahead. And this study really nails down the fact that long COVID is a lot more than just some fatigue, right? I mean, what kind of range of symptoms are are we able to see from the study? Well, the most common symptoms are breathlessness, fatigue, as you said, and palpitations, some so cardiorespiratory effects, but also brain fog, which we've been hearing about. So some neurological effects, you know, lack of mental acuity um, afterwards, which I think many people who've had COVID recognize during the acute phase of the disease. There are some reassuring aspects to this study, but they also need further research. So it, it suggests that asymptomatic illness did not cause as much long COVID as people who had symptoms. And the sickest people seemed to have more long COVID. But, you know, I followed up with a, a well-known researcher and he, and he said, you know, that wasn't surprising that the sickest people were more likely to get long COVID. But there are so many more people with mild disease that even if only a small percentage of them suffer from long COVID, we're still facing a mass disabling event, uh, you know, a public health crisis going ahead. And the the great thing about this Scottish study, like you said, it's the population that uh, in Scotland that agreed to do this uh, through text messages. We can kind of extrapolate that same sort of Western lifestyle, international business over here to the United States, where we have nearly 330 million people. What does this study mean for our population size? How many of us could be effectively disabled and unable to care for ourselves or even work? Well, the, the estimates we have at the moment from the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, is somewhere between 7 and 20-something million people, I think, don't have the exact number, a million of them completely out of work. One of the things the study reflects is how long COVID can affect people differently, affecting their work habits, their employability, um, their ability to go about their daily lives. So, you know, we will learn more. I hope we'll learn more about how to prevent and treat long COVID. I mean, that's the kind of next step. But, you know, with any new disease, you know, this is a fantastic study. It has 18 months worth of data that it's now releasing. They are going to go on. They will collect more data from more people. And we're continuing to have acute infections. So, there are going to be more people getting long COVID into the future. No doubt about it. Francis Steed Sellers with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for the Washington Post. You can read all about this online at WashingtonPost.com. Snohomish County has confirmed its first influenza death since 2020. Details from Kathy O'Shea. The county has had no flu deaths for the last two seasons, according to a surveillance report released by the Snohomish Health District. The report also shows 11 hospitalizations countywide this flu season, and State Department of Health data shows low flu activity statewide. Snohomish Health Officer Dr. James Lewis attributes the low number of cases to measures taken to prevent the spread of COVID, but says we're likely to see a resurgence of flu infections soon. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Kathy. We've all seen studies that show high blood pressure can lead to heart disease or that eating healthier might prevent a stroke. There's a new system to tell which of those studies should guide you. Let's give a listen. It's called Burden of Proof, a new system from UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation that uses a five-star system so that when you hear things like coffee is bad for you one day and good for you the next, you know how much faith to put into it. IHME's Dr. Jeff Stanaway. For example, smoking and lung cancer is a five-star association, and that means that we have really robust evidence of a strong association between the risk and the outcome. One star means we don't really have 
solid evidence here. The IHME team also says how you choose to behave depends on the level of risk you're willing to take. They say if you really want to minimize your risk, then you might pay attention to research with one or two stars, and if you're willing to take some risk, then the three, four, or five-star research is more likely to be your guide. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Anybody driving on the Ballard Bridge looking at Fisherman's Terminal will notice a lot of crab boats are still at the dock. A very historic event has happened, keeping all these boats home. We'll find out in our next segment. And the ups and downs of the gas prices for this past week. But let's get to the story. Actor William Shatner is reassessing his brief space flight from a year ago, saying now it filled him with despair for planet Earth. To explain why, here's Corman Haig. The 91-year-old actor, best known as Star Trek's planet-hopping Captain Kirk, flew aboard a new Shepard rocket built by Kent-based Jeff Bezos-owned Blue Origin on a 10-minute trip beyond the Earth's atmosphere and back. Upon landing, an emotional Shatner embraced Bezos. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion. Now the actor says it took him several hours to realize he was experiencing, quote, great grief for the planet. In a new book, Shatner writes the short space flight heightened his awareness of the dangers of climate change and, quote, filled me with dread. He adds, my trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. It's Northwest News this week here on radio every Saturday nights at 7, Sunday nights at 9, and available as a podcast for your convenience of listening at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Mark Christopher. Hang around, we got plenty more. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. If you're a longtime fan of Deadliest Catch, it was at Fisherman's Terminal so long ago a conversation between a couple of skippers brought a great idea for the Discovery Channel. It's amazing now, though, this time of year, many of these boats that are sitting at the dock at Fisherman's Terminal would be up north getting ready for crab season. But not this year. Some bad news they learned this past week, and it's historic. As Alaska calls off two different harvests. Alaska's Department of Fish and Wildlife has been digesting the numbers, the very low numbers, based on a population study conducted over the summer. And after days of debate, they've concluded in order to protect two different species, they're canceling the fall Bristol Bay king crab harvest and, for the first time in history, they're scrapping the winter snow crab harvest. Apparently, snow crab populations collapsed in the aftermath of a 2019 Bering Sea warming. Last year's snow crab harvest of 5.6 million pounds was the smallest in more than 40 years. Jamie Gowen, executive director of the Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers, tells the Times, quote, I'm struggling for words. This is so unbelievable that this is happening. We have third-generation fishermen who are going to go out of business. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. In case you're wondering, last check on crab. $60 a pound for king crab. Moving on, several office buildings in downtown Seattle remain largely vacant. As Eric Heinz found out, that's despite efforts to lure remote workers back to the traditional workplace. According to the Downtown Seattle Association, just 36% of downtown office workers were back as of last week. That's down 10% from mid-July and among the worst back-to-office performances of any major U.S. city. Castle Systems, an office security firm, tells the Seattle Times, cities such as Seattle, where employers sent workers home early in the pandemic, often have struggled more to get those workers back. 
Also, a tight labor market in some sectors gives workers more say over whether to return to the office. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. It's been about a year and a half since President Joe Biden signed the American Rescue Plan into law, and the results have been mixed so far. Many now see it as a double-edged sword. The two edges of the sword we're talking about here, a fast recovery from pandemic losses and a contributing factor to the significant inflation we're seeing. David, how quickly did prices start to surge after the American Rescue Plan was signed? Well, prices started going up uh, pretty quickly, and it's uh, you know it's just hard to know, maybe impossible to, to uh, nail down definitively whether that was a direct cause or something of a coincidence. But it's clear that the uh, 1.9 trillion dollar rescue plan contributed to inflation. Economists disagree about how much, and we tried to walk through the various estimates uh, in this story and balance it out against the obvious gains in, in the labor market that have occurred over the same time. We wanted to show people both the good that came out of it and the bad. And this is a really extensive piece that you put together that folks should take the time to read this week. But when we think about how much inflation has happened, what amount of that might have been inevitable because of the pandemic? Yeah, it's it's important as you as you sort of you know pick through this to understand that there was a lot going on and always is a lot going on in a twenty five trillion dollar economy. So it's you know it it's easy to sort of point to one thing and say this is the cause of everything, but at the same time that we were spending all that money with the rescue plan, we had the Fed keeping interest rates uh, very low, uh, rock bottom rates. Uh, and out in the market buying up bonds and other assets uh, to to keep rates down at the long end. So you had a lot happening. Then you've got the war in Ukraine that nobody saw coming really earlier this year. That disrupts global markets for food and fuel, sends prices for those skyrocketing. The pandemic is still out there. You know, it's sort of one thing after another. And uh, looking at all of those factors, it's clear that inflation is a global problem. The U.K. has prices going up about 10% annually. The Eurozone, about 9%. Canada is about 7%. So, you know, this is a global problem. The rescue plan, according to the economists we consulted and the studies we read, made inflation worse. And, you know, whether that was one percentage point or up to four percentage points depends on which study you believe. And it, from the White House posture, it, it, they have this this sort of stance as if, okay, well, the American Rescue Plan is still ongoing. It's still being used to some extent. What was their reaction to some of the criticism you heard from the economists? Well, uh, you, you can you can probably imagine what their reaction was. They uh, they disagree with these studies, and I think the important context from the administration's position is that many of these policymakers lived through the global financial crisis in 2008 and lived through the very painfully slow and weak recovery that followed it. It took us something like six years to get back to the level of jobs that we had going into that crisis in 2008. That's a long time. And it's not just a numbers game. Those are individual people, individual families that are scarred by the experience of going without work and going without educational opportunities, not being able to do things for their kids, etc. That's Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News Radio.
ABC News political analyst Steve Roberts says the rising price of gasoline has the potential to hurt Democrats in next month's midterm elections. Steve told me that most voters don't care that the worldwide rise in gasoline prices is not controlled by the party that controls the White House. The president has very little impact on oil prices. He tried during the summer by releasing uh, stores from the uh, National Petroleum Reserve to have some downward pressure on prices, but it's largely outside, in short run, largely outside our control. In the long run, if you develop green energy, if you develop more sources of domestic production, if you build more refineries, you can have an impact on oil prices, but not before the November election. He believes every voter is a combination of many factors, with lots of women motivated to vote by the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but many others motivated right now by the difficulties they're having due to inflation. Steve believes that should be a concern to Democrats. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. Amazon making a large investment in zero emission deliveries. Kathy O'Shea with this story. The company says it will invest 1 billion euros to add thousands more electric vans, long-haul trucks, and cargo bikes to its European delivery network. On its website, the retail giant said the investment would grow the number of its electric vehicles in Europe to roughly 10,000, more than triple the current number. Amazon says it will also build hundreds of fast chargers across its European facilities that can charge vehicles in about two hours. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. This past week, we hear of two more men here from our area involved with that attack on the Capitol. We'll get to that just ahead. Our state continues to claw back the $645 million in unemployment benefits stolen by fraudsters early in a pandemic. Ryan Howard is saying that millions are still being held by banks. The Employment Security Department didn't give an exact figure, but ESD says more than $400 million of the $645 million scammers managed to snag has been recovered so far. Following a 2021 audit, Deb Stevens with the State Auditor's Office said, ESD's online fraud detection tools simply were not able to combat the sophisticated nature of the attack. With much of the fraud happening overseas, it's unlikely the state will get back every dollar, but State Attorney General Bob Ferguson has pushed banks to return more than $22 million with forfeiture motions. Ferguson just filed more of those motions to get the money left in hundreds of bank accounts worth more than $11 million. ESD sent me a statement which reads in part, quote, we've made significant changes to improve security since 2020, and because fraud is ever-changing, we continue to monitor and refine our methods. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News This Week. All top stories to help you recap for the week. We'll be right back. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Jeff Paul here at Northwest News, hearing that two more men from Washington State have been arrested for their alleged actions during the attack on the nation's capital. 40-year-old Richard Slaughter of Orning and his 20-year-old stepson, Caden Gottfried, were arrested by the FBI and released on personal recognizance following a court appearance in Tacoma. The Justice Department has charged Slaughter with assaulting officers with a deadly weapon, interfering with officers during civil disorder, and other felony and misdemeanor offenses. Gottfried, meanwhile, is charged with assaulting and impeding officers and other misdemeanor crimes. 
crimes. Court documents accuse the dad of attacking officers with a long pole and distributing pepper spray to other rioters. The son is accused of being in a mob that pushed back against Capitol Police. The pair are among the nearly 900 people nationwide that have been arrested in connection with the attack on the Capitol. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. The United States and its allies support the people of Ukraine through humanitarian and military shipments. International cooperation has sent billions of dollars, in fact, to help Ukrainians and sanctions nearly every aspect of life in Russia. But can that cooperation last through winter when Europe needs Russian fuel to heat homes? Another story that our own Taylor Van Sice looked into. Yasmin, as you report today, the White House has an eye on a United Nations vote. What's on the table? So I I think the United Nations vote has been pushed to Thursday, but this is basically a draft resolution that it would condemn Russia for its annexation of four Ukrainian territories, which is illegal under international law. They staged these sham referendums in these territories to to try to make it look like they had popular support there. And of course, it was it was not a real election. Uh, So this this would be condemning that that annexation. But this is actually, you know, while this would just be symbolic, It's actually a big test for the U.S. and how much they succeeded in keeping together this international coalition supporting Ukraine. Um, And we know that President Biden has also been spending time trying to convince, you know, these non-aligned countries, countries in the so-called global south regions of Latin America, Asia, Africa, uh, to not just abstain or, or be neutral, but to actually condemn Russia for this. And it's possible that maybe we'll see some votes shift because of the renewed missile attacks on Ukraine. What about at home, though? Is the president at risk of losing Republican support through the winter? I think the president does face a number of challenges at home. You know, on the one, for first of all, you have OPEC, which decided to cut oil production, which the, we know the White House is taking quite personally, or many members of the White House are taking quite personally from Saudi Arabia, because that could send gas prices going back up just before the midterms and, and beyond. Uh, so that could soften some domestic support. And then if Republicans do take control of one or both chambers of Congress, we have seen uh, Republicans, particularly those aligned with President Trump, not so much people like Mitch McConnell or Mitt Romney or sort of more traditional Republicans, but those aligned with President Trump starting to express skepticism as to why the U.S. is sending so much money for a war overseas. And the other challenge is no one knows right now how this war ends or when it ends. And there is the risk of of people just losing patience, especially as economic problems start to mount. You know, on that note, is the White House saying if they're pushing either Russia or Ukraine to the negotiating table? They are not. The, The White House has been very clear that they feel it is up to Ukraine and to President Zelensky and only to them to decide when the war ends and how it ends and what terms they're willing to do it on. They've been very clear, both in public and in private, that they are not going to push the Ukrainians to any kind of negotiated settlement uh, or try to push them to accept some kind of, of settlement with Russia, that they, they want to leave that entirely up to them. And, you know, that's a position that could become untenable over time. Yasmin Abutala with us on Northwest News Radio. The Pierce County Council recently voted to remove E-Verify as a requirement for contractors. But we're hearing now the county executive has vetoed that decision. Carlene Johnson with details. It's a mandate for any federal contract to ensure the employees that any government group is contracting with are here legally. But it is voluntary for contracts that use state or local dollars. The four Democrats on the Pierce County Council passed an amended ordinance last week that explicitly exempts non-federal contractors from needing to enroll in the program. One of the groups that urged that change is Perinatal Support Washington. Executive Director Allie Johnson. User error can result in ineligibility that leads to lost work, both for the employee and the employer. It passed, only to then be vetoed two days later by County 
County Executive Bruce Dammeyer. The News Tribune reports in his veto letter, he wrote that E-Verify has been used in the county since 2010 and has proven to be a convenient and effective way to make sure the county and contractors meet their obligations to hire only authorized workers. Those in the music industry seeing their livelihoods taken away. We'll get to that story in our next segment. But here for you now, Washington barreling toward the finish line on new standards for zero-emission vehicles. John Lobertini explains. The State Department of Ecology is creating a new roadmap for all new light-duty cars and trucks sold by 2035. Also a wrinkle in the Clean Air Act. But the state wants that sooner by 2030, and the law actually requires an 8% increase in the sale of zero-emission vehicles by 2025. Adam Saul, air quality expert. They would take effect in 2025 with the first deliveries of model year 2026 vehicles. Transportation accounts for 45% of the greenhouse gas emissions in Washington. On top of the greenhouse gases, Joel Cresswell is a climate policy expert. We also know those vehicles create a lot of co-pollutants that are linked to health problems, including asthma, lung and heart problems, and shortness of breath. This would include electric vehicles, plug-in hybrid cars and trucks, and those running on hydrogen fuel cells. Buyers would receive a tax exemption and, starting in 2023, rebates of up to $7,500. The policy is expected to be finalized by December. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. It's here every week at the same time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7, Northwest News This Week. I'm Mark Christopher. Back in a minute. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. We've all been feeling the effects of what has been a tightening economy. And while you and I may have to stretch our dollars a little more carefully to pay the bills and buy food, it turns out that many in the music industry are seeing their livelihoods taken away. Jason Nathanson of ABC Entertainment spoke about it with our very own Bill O'Neill. Let's give a listen. Jason, a lot of music acts are simply canceling tours. Why is that? Yeah, and the latest comes from a band called Animal Collective. They're kind of an alternative pop experimental band. Not a household name by any stretch of the imagination, but they've been touring solidly for about 20 years now. But the economics of touring, they say, it's just not making sense right now. They had a tour set up for the UK and Europe later this year, and they say that it's not sustainable because of inflation, currency devaluation, bloated shipping and transportation costs. They say they could not make a budget for this tour that did not lose money. So they've canceled it. And they're not alone. Little Sims, a U.K. rapper who was named Best New Artist at the Brit Awards earlier this year, she was going to come to the U.S., had to cancel that. A singer by the name of Santa Gold, another highly acclaimed artist, also canceled her tour. An indie band called Wednesday out of North Carolina, they detailed how they were on the South by Southwest tour earlier this year. They were paid a little over $2,000, and they spent a little over $2,000 just to make the tour work for them. They ended up in the hole, $98. So your big name acts like Harry Styles, Dua Lipa, they're doing okay. But these little bands who were touring really makes most of their money. They can't survive right now. Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of a case of haves or have-nots, if you will. I mean, after all, Bruce Springsteen, he's touring right now. And let's face it, might have to take out a second mortgage to afford a ticket to one of his shows. Sure, and people are choosing, and that's one of the reasons. So people are saying, look, we only have enough money for one or two things, and we only have enough desire, right? Coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of people just, they're picking and choosing what they pay for for entertainment differently. So they might say, 
yeah, let's catch the Springsteen concert, but that's the only concert we're going to go to that month. So the smaller shows that they might have gone to, maybe they were going to go to maybe four shows a month. They're down to one. The diehards, they're still going to three shows a week or whatever they were going to before. But for most of us, we're picking one show a month, and that's usually going to be the big shows. Of course, there's a trickle-down to all of this as well. I mean, there are workers and cities that are impacted, arenas and venues are impacted as well. Oh, definitely. And that's part of the thing. It's not just the, the bands that can't make it work. It's the people at home who, they're not coming out to shows, and if they're not coming out to shows, then that's less money for the venue, that's less money for the band. And ultimately, the venue says, well, then we can't support that. You know, there's an interesting story today out of New York on Broadway. The show A Strange Loop is closing. A Strange Loop just won the Tony this year for Best Musical. This is the top musical, and they're closing because they're playing to just about 79% capacity, and they can't afford to stay open with such low numbers. And that affects not only the actors on stage, but everybody in the house, the ushers, you know, a lot of jobs are affected by this. ABC's Jason Nathanson with us on the Northwest Newsline. There we go. We have filled your mind with perhaps the stories you missed of the past week, and you're ready for a new one. Northwest News this week is heard every week at this time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. And repeat, yes, it is a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. That's where you'll find other favorites, including Politicast, Lifebeat, and Puget Sound Now. If you could take a minute, we thank you for doing it. And you enjoy this as a podcast, would you share a rating and review at Apple Podcast? Thank you once again. Northwest News this week, ending for the week of October 15th. Produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor Painter Webb. On behalf of all of us in the newsroom here at Northwest News Radio, I'm Mark Christopher. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.